As the kids are being dismissed, you take your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6 this morning. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know we did. Um, it was more relaxing than some years, which was kind of fun. I told my wife in 13 years, I've never thought Thanksgiving was better than Christmas. And I, for some reason I thought this Thanksgiving was, and then she reminded me that we had less going on. I was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> It was more restful. But it's great when it's Thursday every year versus Christmas, which, uh, speaking of, for a calendar, people have asked about Christmas Eve, which is Sunday. So our Christmas Eve service will be this service. So we have a Christmas Eve service. It's just at 1015. So those who are wondering, um, last year we were able to do it, I think it was Friday last year we had one. Um, and normally we do have one, but I think with it being Sunday, we're just going to do it that morning. Always thankful, speaking of. Uh, a lot of setup and teardown, a lot of work goes into church every single morning here. So I want to say a thank you, being thankful for all of you that do and serve in those ways. And that's one of those considerations when we look at things like Christmas Eve as well. It's not just me coming in and preaching a sermon, which actually I enjoy and would love to do. Um, but we obviously got to tear up, tear down and all of those things. But lots to be thankful for uh, within family, within friends, within church. And so Hoping you all enjoyed uh, your Thanksgiving. Let me pray, and then we'll begin this morning. We're going to look at a larger section, um, but I think it'll make sense as we walk through, at least if I do my job. So, Father, just thank you for this morning. Uh, what a blessing it is to gather as your church. Lord, we of all people should be the most thankful. Lord, those who have come to Christ, who have recognized their sin their need of a Savior, knowing that it is Christ who reached down, even as we see in this section of John. Lord, those who continually reject what is obvious, that Jesus is your Son, and as we'll continue to study in the weeks to come, that you are so gracious that you have chosen to elect, that you have called those out, Lord, that the Father has chosen some, Lord, to believe and to be thankful that you have called us out of darkness into the light. Lord, we should always be those who are thankful year-round, every single day. For we know what we deserve, and we know the riches that you have bestowed on us in your Son, Jesus. Lord, help us behold his glories as we see even here what is missed by those who are miraculously provided for when they only see what is physical when he is offering something far greater. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you ever started a new thing, joined a, a kind of a new hobby or a new club, and ever had that moment at the beginning stage where you feel like a complete idiot. You don't know the language. You don't know the drill or what people do. And you kind of walk in looking around trying to fit in. People start using language you've never heard before. Well, for me, I can remember when I started seminary way back when, my first semester in seminary, thinking, I don't know, no one ever really explained all these acronyms they started using for commentaries. And I, no one really just, they just assumed you know it. And eventually you kind of figured out and had to whisper if you were you know, brave enough to ask, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And eventually you kind of catch on that it has its own lingo and it's kind of own little, little subculture. But I can remember thinking, man, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know what they're talking about at all. And one of those times was in my first theology class, Theology Proper, which dealt with the uh, being, the, the works, the attributes of God. And the very first thing we did, he said, we're going to start by talking about prolegomena. I thought, I never, that was not one of my vocab words in elementary school. And prolegomena, what it simply means 
is, is an introduction. And of course, you ask the questions, well, then why didn't he say an introduction? Well, it's a word that kind of carries a little more, which is to say it's a critical or a discursive introduction to a book. If you're wondering how to spell that word, I'm giving it to you this morning. You could add this to your vocab if you don't know already. It was new to me then. But the point is, it's important introduction. You need the introduction to understand the book you're reading or the, the paper or the subject matter. And that was kind of what they did. Let's give you the, the introductory material so you can understand when we start talking about here, in that case, theology, theology proper, the prolegomena. And I use that and bring that up to say there are some introductory things about John chapter 6 especially because you're not going to allow me. I haven't asked. I guess I could ask you all. Uh, but I don't think you want to be here until 9 p.m. And so we can't preach all of John 6 as one unit, but it is. And so because of that, there's some really important introductory things we need to understand, introductory points about John chapter 6 that I think will help you think rightly about what is going on here. So I want to first read the story, 1 through 14, give us this context, and then we'll broaden it to give a broader context to help see. Because if you're like me, this is the probably most famous miracle that Jesus performed. It's in all four Gospels, and it's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you go to any church, and you look in their Sunday school, there's going to be some kind of picture, or back in the day, flannel, of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's well known. And I always remember it being, this is amazing. God uses his power of creation but there's something going on in this context that makes it less than I probably originally thought listening to the story of how wonderful Jesus is because that's not the whole story and the whole response as we will see. So let's begin here. John chapter 6. Let's read these first 14 verses and then we'll get some broader context before we go back and walk through them. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And now a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was doing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he was sitting with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. And therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to even receive a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world I just add a little context, verse 15. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So if you read those first 15 verses, you come away, at least for me, with a fairly positive outcome. And we saw it kind of going back and forth where Nicodemus doesn't seem to understand in chapter 3 what Jesus is saying. 
But then you see this radical conversion in Samaria with the woman at the well. And she goes, tells the town. And the town comes out, they hear Jesus, and they believe. In the last few weeks in chapter 5, it's been a little bit sad because you start seeing rejection in chapter 5. Well, maybe we're back to them recognizing he is truly a prophet. In fact, they're so excited about Jesus, they want to make him king. But this is where the prolegama, the introductory points, help us see the larger part without having to preach the whole thing in one setting. We'll do it over a few weeks. But number one, we need to note that this miracle is part of a larger whole. Part of a larger whole, John chapter 1 through John chapter 21. So is that big whole proving demonstrating, showing that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. But it's also even part of this bigger chapter 5 through 7, which is on rejection. They're all rejecting Jesus, and it's going to explain. If you're reading the Gospel of John, you're going, how could they crucify Jesus? Well, chapters 5 through 7 are going to let you know why and what they're thinking. Because remember, they, after the man grabs the mat on the Sabbath, they want to kill him because he's claiming to be God. But it's even in chapter 6, it's part of a larger whole. Feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, which is kind of just almost randomly stuck in there. The bread of life discourse, which moves to a direct discussion to the leaders and then to his disciples by the end. So if you go to the end, that part of a larger whole tells you what? It gives you the context that this isn't a positive story. I say it is a negative story. And by that I simply mean it is a story of rejection. Go to John chapter 6, verse 66, just to give you a kind of a preview, because this is important to understand this Miracle 66, after he ends up teaching on the bread of life, as a result of his teaching, this context, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So we know with the context, this is going to go south at some point. They're not going to remain excited about him being the prophet. They're not going to remain, let's make him king. They're actually going to walk away and say, what you've said is too hard to believe. And they've dropped down to 71, last verse of this chapter. Now he's speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Well, now we're already led on. Many of them walk away. The large crowd's going to be no more. It's going to be a smaller group. Even the most intimate group, the twelve. And even one of the intimate group is going to betray him. And seven... Where we left with not kingship, but after these things, Jesus, verse 1, was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea. That is, he can't go down to Jerusalem, because if he does, they're going to kill him, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So, yes, this is an exciting miracle. He feeds all of these people, but as part of the larger context, too, it's really going to have a negative flavor by the end. You're going to see that even as he describes the people's response. And it's going to continue this whole topic that physical needs are secondary. So know that it's part of a larger whole, that it really at its roots is negative, but also thirdly, that physical needs are secondary. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. John really wants you to understand even these miracles. In the, say in Matthew, you have parables that have spiritual truth. Well, it's really the miracles that John is showing you. Even these point to a greater spiritual reality. Chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And they think, well, you can't destroy the temple. And how could you build it even if you did in three days? He said, well, we'd learn later. He's not talking about the temple. He's talking about his body, his death, and his resurrection. John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, be born again. And he goes, well, how can you get back into your mother's womb? And he even says in chapter 3, verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So he's using earthly things like birth to help them understand heavenly realities of you need, the issue is you can't be born again on earth. You need to be born from above and you need someone from above to give you that new birth. Same thing, living water, chapter four. He says, I want to give you living water. Give me a drink. And if you'd known who I was, you'd want me to give you a drink. And the woman at the well says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket. The well is deep. She's simply thinking of natural. If you get, where's, how are you going to get, you don't even have a bucket to get water out of this well, and it's really deep, and you need a bucket, you need a rope, you don't have it. So where then are you, Jesus, going to get that living water? Well, she's thinking on one plane, natural. Jesus is trying to help the readers here, you and I, and he's going to help his disciples along the way as well. The Spirit's moving us to understand there is the spiritual and there is the supernatural and understand how they relate. That's huge here, because why? Because Jesus is going to have this story where he's going to provide bread that sustains them physically, but it's going to point to something they need that is greater. And he's going to say 635, which is not this week, but next week, he is the bread of life. And so that's a huge context, and very important we understand that as we approach this miracle in the first 14, 15 verses. And really, we're going to get into, I, I'm sure we, we're going to plan on getting into the walking on the water, because I think it's really important you see how it's connected this morning. So with those words of introduction, let's look at this miracle. Let's try to piece together what the bread and the fish, that miracle then has to do with another very well-known miracle, 18, very short, at least the way John gives it, uh, through uh, the walking on the sea, really 15 through 21, only six verses. What do the bread and the fish have to do with the wind and the waves. I want to see that connection this morning. Because everything is, yes, going to show us point to rejection. But of course, it's left with the disciples and the readers, that's you and me, with not just rejection, but then are you going to receive Jesus? That's really where it's moving here. So let's look at the setting, verses 1 through 4. The setting here of this miracle is given in these first four verses. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So you're in the northern part of Israel, known as the Sea of Galilee. You see even uh, John lets them know that it's also known as Tiberias because of the town that is kind of on the northwest corner. That was a uh, very, probably the largest town, the largest town in that area. It's also known by another name, Kenareth. Um, even to this day, if you go to Israel, they're going to call it Lake Kenareth. They're not going to call it the Sea of Galilee. Christians call it that, but no Israeli is going to call it that. They're going to call it the Lake of Kenareth, which even then, it was known by that name as well. But in the context there, it's going to come up with the sea and the walking on the water. But just to give you a picture, I think of this when I've preached at different times. Um, in Matthew, we talked that, if you think of Lake McConaughey, if you're from Nebraska and you've been out west, it's about the same size. The, the Sea of Galilee is a little bit, it's a few miles longer and a few miles wider. But it's that same thing. It's, it's not a true sea. It's more of an extremely large lake. And because of the mountainous area, you have this cold air that comes down onto the warm part there and creates a lot of windy conditions, which are going to be seen here in a few moments. But that's important for our context. And also, we're going to see a large crowd is following Jesus because they were seeing the signs which he was doing on those who were sick. Even that kind of lets you know, are they following because they love him, because they treasure him, because they think he's the son of God? No, simply at this point, it's the external side of this. Not because he forgives sin, but because they see he does these physical outward manifestations of amazing miracles of healing the sick. And then Jesus goes up on the mountain, and there he's sitting down with his disciples. 
context here, I said all the Gospels give this account. We know he does teaching, and he teaches all day, and that somewhat is going to give the context for why feed them, because he's kept them all day. They don't have time to go back into town. But it also tells us, and this is almost, if you don't understand John, it feels a little bit of a throwaway. He lets you know there is a feast, because John likes to mention feast. Even if you go to chapter 7, he's going to remind you, uh, verse 2, the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths was near. He seems to always mark things by the feasts. And if this is the, the second Passover and Christ is crucified on the third, it does let you know timing, that he's a year away from his death. But probably even more, he brings up this idea of look at the feast of the Passover, that when, that what they're celebrating, that God they, delivered them from Egypt and the angel of death passed over the homes. He provided a sacrificial lamb that is, that took the penalty for them. And it does anticipate what Jesus is about to, to do for them. But also, this is brought up in one of the commentaries, it is interesting, you think of the nationalism and verse 15, might also help indicate why they're so excited about him becoming king because everyone's going to be in Jerusalem. Maybe they want to bring him down there and make him king. Uh, this would be very much a nationalistic holiday similar to for us, 4th of July, that kind of idea. And that probably plays into why at that time they want to make him king as well. Either way, it's probably more theological what he's bringing in there to say this feast is near and he's going to provide something. And probably more than the Lord's table, uh, this for Point to that, the Lord's table is pointing back to Jesus being the bread of life in this summary. So there's that, and I think an important context of what John is starting to unpack here in this miracle. So the setting, one through four, then is followed by this test in the next few verses, verse five. Jesus knows what he's going to do, but he is going to test Philip. And in one way, you say, test all of the disciples that are there. It says, therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, because he wants to test Philip individually, and just asks, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now we don't, we're going, what's the, what's the picture here? We see that there's 5,000 men. If there's women and children, most people would guess there's probably 20 plus thousand people. So you're looking out on a crowd of 20,000 people and you're asking, hey, Philip, and you know, there, there's no ovens, there's no electricity, right? There's, there's no easy way to do this. There's no easy way to eat, feed 50 people in this culture. And there's 20,000 people out there. So I don't know what that'd be to us, but just feeding 20,000 people today would take massive machines and all the rest. Philip, what's your idea? Where should we go? Verse 6 explains, why do he ask the question? He said it to test Philip, to test him. Because Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. John often brings this up throughout the gospel that Jesus knows more. Why? Because, of course, he's showing and demonstrating, hey, don't, he's the son of God, but he's interacting with human beings here. And he's trying to test them. You could ask, and I think it's a good question, what is the test? You could say, is it a test of faith? Well, yes, to a degree. Probably a test of the whole book in the sense of, does Philip at this point recognize Jesus is the Son of God? Because if he says you are the Son of God, then of course uh, you could do a miracle here and feed them, even out of nothing. We've seen you do all these miracles. So maybe that's the test. Is he the Son of God? Or even perhaps it is back to the test of Jesus saying, I've been teaching you these things over and over. Look at the natural. But I want you to see the supernatural. Either way, Philip fails the test. 
you're going to see the disciples actually um, in Mark's account of the walking on the sea. It says the reason they didn't believe, the reason they were afraid is because they didn't understand the loaves. They didn't understand this lesson. And it's going to lead to, they still don't understand that Jesus is the son of God. And if he wants to calm a sea, he can do so. Don't fear. It's really a lesson here of discipleship. And it even is going to beg the question of who this miracle is even for. Is it for all the people who are going to get fed? Or is it for the disciples and for the future readers? Which I think it is. But Philip goes on and he answers it this way. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now your Bible might translate that a little bit or put it in a footnote, but it's a lot of money. That's his point. More money than you have, Jesus. More money than we have. Take a million dollars is kind of that expression. Uh, denarii, this 200 denarii would be about eight months wages. Saying, like I said, in our vernacular, that'd be a, if you had a million dollars, you couldn't even let everyone have a little bite if you had that much money. So it's kind of a snarky remark by Philip. But Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, goes and says, well, here, we've got this. And I don't know what he said it out of. Maybe he's got a... He just brings it up and says, look, we've got a boy here. And this boy has five barley loaves and two fish. What that tells us, at least here in John, he lets us know it's barley. It would be uh, cheap bread, in essence, crackers. Um, even probably uh, unleavened for, for travel. And of course, foreshadowing, I think it's one of the things they used with that Passover feast, the unleavened bread, the, the matzah. But it's also barley, not wheat. And if you used barley, it's to indicate you are from the poor working class. So it's simply a poor boy who has barely enough for himself. He's got five little crackers, in essence, and two fish that are likely pickled. Now, I don't know about you, coming out of Thanksgiving, this does not look that appetizing, but it's all the boy has. And Andrew's kind of saying this is maybe out of the crowd that's near, it's the only thing we have. And Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So we're going to see him not only test the disciples, but then demonstrate to him what he is capable of, which we're going to see is nothing less than a miracle of creation, which only God can do. So, verse 10, Jesus goes on, and we're going to see here not only setting the test, but here thirdly, the miracle itself in verse 10. Jesus is going to have the people sit down. It's going to be very orderly. And now there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down, and we see there's 5,000 of the men. So likely women, children, maybe up to 20,000. And Jesus then took the loaves, having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish. And so, he gives thanks, he distributes them to the people through the disciples. And it's noted here, as much as they wanted, or the idea here that all are satisfied. This is the kind of text where you know, I'm always fearful of spiritualizing a text, making things that aren't there appear, you know, make it too, and just don't miss the main point by getting kind of hyper-spiritual. But at the same time, you have John trying to explain and show and demonstrate that this is a picture of it, something natural happening with supernatural truth. And they have as much as they wanted. You can't help but hear and feel saying, I was there. The Holy Spirit's inspiring him to write this. And I saw everyone and everyone with Jesus provided was completely satisfied. It doesn't, you don't have to reach too far back to Thursday to go, you know, 
I could not have had one more role. I was completely satisfied. And he's saying, that's how Jesus provides. Not just a little, not just enough, but infinite. As much as they could have, he will give and he will satisfy. And you can't help but go, that has to be a picture of what Jesus provides over and over again. And so they're filled, verse 12, and he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. I think even this is going to be a picture here. So they gathered them up and they filled the 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So eaten it. And therefore, you go, they're going, this is feeding 20. I mean, you just imagine the energy, the, the, what it would fill space-wise, all of this food. And then they have some left over, enough to fill uh, large baskets, these 12 baskets with pieces of it. And we see they're going to respond and be very excited about who he is because he has fed them. Verse 13, though, what's the indication or what's the importance of 12, the 12 baskets? Well, some say it may represent that, again, he provides satisfaction. He can satisfy, think of 12, you think of the 12 tribes of Israel, which that could be the case here. I wouldn't die on this hill. But I tend to think, and this is interesting in the Gospel of John, if you were to read, again, this is the context. It's part of a larger whole. Go all the way to John uh, 6 at the very end, 66. Verse, uh, John 6, verse 70. And Jesus' answer to the disciples here. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Of course, he's talking about Judas there. That's the first time in the Gospel of John he's referred to them as the twelve. And so I tend to think, if this is all about rejection and receiving of Christ, there's twelve, and he understands one's going to betray him, but they're going to be different than all the rest. When all the rest leave, there's going to be twelve that remain. When all the food is gone, there are twelve that remain. It might be a reference just there. Either way, God is going to use that then, of course, not to carry the analogy too far, but to feed that is to provide the message of the gospel to the rest of the world. It just seems like 12 there is an important enough term. And then he uses the 12, uh, the name, to call them the 12 for the first time throughout the gospel of John in this chapter. It seems at least significant there. What is the response? They said, they say, verse 14, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. They seem to think this is the new Moses. This is what Moses said, a prophet in his, in, in kind of the, the way of Moses. He's come into the world. But they seem to at least separate that from Messiahship. Maybe they think kingship, verse 15, but he's not the kind of king that they expect. Their expectations are off. They are going to want someone to come in with a political rule. That's not why Jesus is here. And they think if the first prophet Moses led the people out of slavery, well, what is the second Moses going to do? Jesus is going to lead us out of the Roman servitude. But it's the enthusiasm for the wrong Jesus. He's not the king they thought. They're seeking political salvation, not spiritual salvation. We'll take that as a whole. Like I said, we know this is not going to end well. But then there's something very interesting that goes, goes on here with verse 15. And you have another really, really popular, well-known story that only gets six verses. Jesus walking water. You don't get 
everything told. You don't get Peter walking on the water here. That's not important to John. There's only going to be one important thing to John. And then, if you go to 22, but especially if you get up to 26, he's going to pick up on the bread of life and the discourse of the miracle of Jesus providing bread and saying it's not just about the physical bread. It's about, I don't just give you bread. I am the bread. So I have a story that seems to be completely unrelated in the middle. To me, this is helpful because I've preached Mark before. And I've seen this before. And if you read Mark, Mark is so well known for this device of a literary device, the way he writes. He's so well known, they actually even call it the Markian sandwich. That is, they take two related things. In this case, the miracle of the bread and the discourse of the bread of life. And they sandwich something seemingly unrelated in the middle, which clarifies the outside. So the middle of this sandwich is the story of the Sea of Galilee. And so what does the bread have to do with the wind is the question. And I think what we're going to see is that the walking on the water is a story, is a, another, you could even say miracle, where it clarifies the meaning of the loaves. And you even see that very clearly in, as I said, Mark, because they're going to see part of what they're not understanding is they're not connecting the dots. They didn't understand the loaves. So our question then is, How? What does it clarify? What does it bring to, what is the main point of this I am the bread of life? What are we clarifying? And how does the story of Jesus walking on the water clarify it? So that's what I want to look at here in these few verses, 15 through verse 21. So he just goes on. They try to make him king in verse 15. You see, he goes to the mountain. Uh, we, we know the disciples go because Jesus makes them go from the other accounts. You know, Jesus tells them, says, take the boats and go across to the east. And so when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Jesus goes up to the mountain. After getting into the boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum, because that's what Jesus had told them. You know the context from other places. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea was stirred up, because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, which is roughly three, three and a half miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. They're frightened because if you've ever been on an ocean, it's this type of winds and waves and whitecaps. As I said, if you think of Lake McConaughey, you think of this is more like a sea than, well, you know, if you get to Minnesota, I have cousins in Minnesota, and what I call a lake, they make fun of, you know, they, uh, it's a pond, like sand pits, not real lakes. Uh, this is more of, again, the size, and when it gets rolling and it gets windy, you have massive capsizing type whitecaps. So think more of an ocean of here of what fears them. We know at least seven of the 12 were fishermen by trade. They fished this lake. If it scared them, you know how severe this storm truly is. So we say, oh, there's some strong wind and it's blowing. No, this is life or death kind of issues. They know they are in serious trouble. They're experienced and they are afraid. The storm maybe even comes intentionally for this purpose. And they know this, they shouldn't be out. And that is why they're fearful because they think they are going to die. Well, what happens? Jesus comes walking out on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They're frightened. Again, none of the story here. This is where Peter walks on water, but John doesn't, that's not his point. He knows you can read that elsewhere. What he wants you to see is Jesus what he says, verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. 
And he wants you to see the response of the disciples in 21, that they were really willing to receive him into the boat. That's it. And then immediately, the boat's off the land, they were, they were where they were going. You think, why even tell the story? And then the story doesn't even relate to the bread on the surface. But I think the key issue here is described in what are you going to do with Jesus? There are those who are going to reject him, but you're going to see the 12 receive him into the boat. Jesus does another miracle. And I even think the other thing this clarifies is I think this clarifies who the audience is. When you look at the parables in Matthew, it's very clear they're not for the crowds. That's why it's confusing to the crowds. But he gets very clear and he explains when he pulls the disciples to pull disciples aside and he explains them more clearly to them. I think this helps clarify who the audience is, which is going to be the disciples and the future readers. Nothing's going to separate them from Jesus. They're going to think about that later in life. And this is a story again for us to look back and go, no, he will go out into the storm to be with them and to carry them safely ashore. So whether you think they're rescuing, Jesus is rescuing these 20,000 plus from hunger, sure. Or being rescued from walking uh, from the winds and the waves on the water. I think the point all goes back to he doesn't just give bread. He is the bread. And he doesn't just make the wind step stop. He's the one who gets into the boat. And it clarifies. What are we talking about here? What's important? The importance is what do you do with Jesus? And are you going to reject or are you going to receive? Because it goes on here. And we're going to see very clearly, verse 22 through 26, what the crowd is truly seeking. And what the crowd is truly seeking isn't salvation. It's simply the natural, not the supernatural. You see, on the next day, the crowd, which stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boat there except one that Jesus had not entered with disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And so, in essence, they're wanting, where's the miracle worker? Wherever the rock star is, we need to be. They thought he stayed because they saw the disciples go, but they thought Jesus was still here. He's not there. So they're going to go and say, if he's not here, they're going to go find him. So other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they are. We ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the story travels. They want more of what they got. The crowd saw that Jesus was not there, verse 24. Nor his disciples. They themselves got into small boats, and they came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Still, I just want to give them the benefit of the doubt. It sounds positive. They, they want to be with Jesus. But Jesus knows the hearts of men, which is both wonderful and terrifying. And he answers them, verse 26. And I think this is really key for us because this is kind of where we'll start next week and then we'll, we'll back up a little bit and keep going forward because everything hinges here and helps you understand the story. Not only the disciples not understand the story of the loaves, this crowd did not. And he answers them. We just want to be with you, Jesus. And Jesus, what we would kind of probably look at and say, this seems harsh. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. This goes back to chapter two. He doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows all men. And he knows what they're seeking and it's not me. It's not me, you have the words of life. You have salvation. That's not why they're there. They're there because they ate the loaves and they're looking for another free 
dinner. There's massive implications for this. I think there's massive ministry implications uh, of the way you do church. They often say, you know, what you get them there with is what you have to keep them with. If you go about just meeting physical needs and not pointing out spiritual need, you really lose the whole purpose of the ministry of Christ. It's not to say that he isn't going to feed them. He does feed them, but it's always pointing to the greater need, which is the spiritual need, that they're sinners separated from God and needing of a Savior. Too often, it can become about the physical I think things are important that are practical. I think you should have a budget. I think you should take care of the, the, the necessities of life. And maybe even the church can, can help you with those things or older godly saints can come alongside of you that are more experienced in life and say, yeah, there's, there's a, probably a, an easier way to live or um, all that. But you never want to get away from, it's not just about the physical. It's not just about helping people have a better day or live a better life, it is about them getting converted and getting saved and understanding the gospel, believing, which of course everything in John is going back to that, do you believe? The question is, are the, is the crowd truly seeking? Are they going to receive Jesus or not? The answer is gonna be, I think, a clear no for the crowd at this stage. The question for the 12 then is, what about you? Are you going to receive me? And I think John's wrapping this all together for you to see both of these miracles and then ask that question, are you going to receive him as Lord and Savior, not just as miracle worker, not just as someone to make your life better? Because we all know just because you have believed in Christ as your Savior, it doesn't necessarily mean life gets easier or you never get sick, but you have a hope that is more eternal. This is why he's going to get into 27. Don't spend your life working for food that perishes, but food that endures for eternal life. What's the point? As cheesy as it sounds, because it sounds cheesy to me, but it's true. (laughs) Are you going to receive Jesus into the boat of your life? It sounds a little cheesy, but it really is what I think. Why is that story sitting there? What What does the bread have to do with the waves? Are you going to receive him? That is the question. And that's going to make the difference here for the crowds and the disciples. And ultimately, by the end of the gospel and by the New Testament, it's going to make the difference between eternal life and eternal hell. What you do with Jesus is what will matter. Well, next week, Jesus is going to build on these two examples. He's going to give this discourse and show you and explain why you need to not work for things that perish. Don't just work for the natural, but for food that endures for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time this morning just to look to your word or to see so uh, much familiarity. Jesus providing, creating food for thousands yet to be even more amazed that they seem to miss the point. They seem to misunderstand who your son truly is. Let us not miss that point this morning. Let us not miss the truth that he is your son. To see the glories of chapter one that he is the word who became flesh, who dwelt among us. Lord, even as we enter for us the Advent season, looking towards Christmas where we do celebrate Jesus coming into this world, Lord, help us be reminded that it's not simply a babe in a manger, but it is God eternal being incarnated in flesh, dwelling 
among us. Encourage us in these just serious truths, even as we go forward and we are so reminded that Jesus does not just provide bread. He is the bread. We just thank you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.